friend who's a psychoanalyst once told me, denial is a hell of a drug. Of the psychological defense mechanisms available, it is the most powerful, primal, and difficult to dismantle. As we near the end of 2020 and enter the ninth month of the COVID-19 global pandemic, these words ring truer every day. As of November 20th, despite the quarter million dead Americans, there are countless citizens of this country who deny the reality, danger, or for some, the mere existence of the virus as it ravages our nation. To the many whom acknowledge the weight and reality of the situation, this sort of epistemological split in perception has led to anger, confusion, and genuine curiosity as to how so many people can simply ignore the threat that rests so clearly in front of them. Why is denial as powerful as it is? Why do we ignore the inevitable? How can we overcome the grief of this pandemic without coming apart at the psychic seams as a people? Today in the community garden, I'll be looking at the pandemic and the psychology behind the variety of responses to it through an unconventional lens, the video games I've been playing to pass the time. How's it going, guys? It's Nate here uh, from the Community Garden Podcast, and today uh, we got a little bit of a different episode. Uh, we took a week off for Thanksgiving and did not record an episode, so I decided I was going to record just a kind of short solo episode and talk about some stuff that's been on my mind and stuff I've been covering in my classes at school. I'm a psychology student and I'm about to graduate with my bachelor's um, in psychology in just a couple of weeks. But I've, you know, been going through some interesting coursework and I've felt like it's been overlapping with um, stuff going on in the world and also stuff I've been doing to pass time during the pandemic. I've been playing a lot of video games. And I just kind of figured I'd do a short little piece, um, just something kind of laid back, and um, talk about some of that stuff. So pretty much the um, basis for the episode, I, I tentatively titled it Doom and Denial, and <laughs> which it's not going to be as dark as it sounds. Um, but I kind of wanted to just start and talk about denial just as like a psychological phenomenon and kind of cover some ideas about denial that might not be as um, frequently thought of or like commonly known. But um, the fir first, I'd like to recommend a book that I read. Um, it's called Why Do I Do That? And I find it to be a really good like entry level book that anyone can pick up that is about psychological defense mechanisms. And it's written in a way for the reader to kind of go through it and um, identify with different defense mechanisms that they might implement. And it goes through all of them. But the first and most primal one is not denial, but repression. And I'm pretty sure it's Freud. It usually is. But um, there's sort of this basic understanding that all psychological defense mechanisms are repressive in the sense that they hold back information from like the psychic conscious, like from your active conscious mind. So, um, put simply, there's some information that your subconscious mind or, you know, the sum of your, um, awareness knows, oh, the presence of this information will be emotionally distressful to process or acknowledge. So it acts as sort of a, um, well, defense mechanism, of course, it's sort of like the immune system of your, um, mental processes, but it will block or prevent that information from coming into 
you know, view. So in that sense, they're all repressive um, from avoidance to denial to um, even sublimation, even some of the positive ones. Um, of course, projection is kind of the most commonly known defense mechanism, the idea of you displacing that information onto someone else and claiming, you know, they're the one doing that or thinking that or saying, you know, whatever the issue is rather than it originating in yourself. But in that sense, you know, all defense mechanisms involve repressing things from the conscious mind. So denial comes in as sort of like the first layer of the onion. If the core is always repression, then denial is being able to entertain the idea in the conscious mind while rejecting it. So you can acknowledge something and say, yes, this, you know, core concept exists, but it's not applicable here. For for example, with COVID, it's saying like, yes, there are people who think there's a pandemic going on, but it's not real. Or there are people who think the virus, or, you know, the virus is real, but, you know, it's not severe and I don't have a high chance of getting it. Something like that. Just, just this little lie you can tell yourself to distance yourself from the idea. Now, um, it is Freud, I know for a fact, that has the coin the quote, facts conflict with our wishes. Um, that is when... Um, denial occurs when facts conflict with our wishes. So the idea that of having reality come in conflict with our desires. So, you know, of course you are in the case of COVID, you're going to desire a world that is normal and stable. And unfortunately, no, um, this year is going to be a fucking shit show and you are, don't, you're not very accepting of this idea. So instead you're just going to say, actually, this year is totally normal. People are making a big fuss out of this. Um, but ultimately, denial, it exemplifies this split in awareness to where in denial is rooted the awareness of the problem. And I found a meme circulating Facebook that I felt uh, exemplified this perfectly. And it was, um, it was a meme regarding uh, Thanksgiving going around. And it was being shared by people who, you know, I would say generally are not taking the pandemic seriously. And it said something along the lines of like, you know, instead of living in fear and socially distancing during Thanksgiving, you should get together with your loved ones because you might not know who's there next year. And I thought so interestingly seated in this post is an acknowledgement that unexpected death may occur in between now and then. Well, why would that be the case? Oh, unless if the pandemic is serious. You know, you can see th that the person in denial is aware of the presence of the threat. They just aren't consciously and actively expressing it, but it will still leak out. And that's what's so interesting about denial and most defense mechanisms is once you're aware of them, you see them so readily presented in people. But because of their nature, they're almost always, you know, shielded from your uh, present conscious experience. This is even with things like sublimation that are more positive, like the idea of taking a negative experience and turning it into something like, for example, like art, like if I'm depressed, I will draw. But then days later, I can look at my drawings and see like, oh, I was processing something here. You know, the subject matter of these drawings really is kind of personal. But at the time, I might not be actively thinking that, but it sort of leaks out subconsciously. Um, and that's sort of just like a quick... Um, primer on 
defense mechanisms in general. But, you know, you can't really talk about denial without talking about uh, the grief cycle, like specifically the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, which I think some people, even not that familiar with psychology, have a pretty baseline understanding of. But the Kubler-Ross grief cycle is just simply the five-point cycle of grief, which starts with denial, moves to anger, which moves to bargaining, which moves to depression, which moves to acceptance. Now, there's different models and projections for moving through grief, but this is kind of like the most readily accepted and known one. There are more complicated ones that have like an inverted bell curve that have acceptance as the middle step and then a series of sublimating factors after that where, you know, you you kind of get a burst of energy which contrasts the depression and then um, you go through a series of steps that sort of act as a opposite to the others. But we'll be focusing on the Kubler-Ross in this one. Um, and I was reading about the Kubler-Ross specifically in my Psychology of Aging textbook, which we have, you know, a lot of chapters in the book dealing with death and loss, which is a natural part of the aging process. But I thought it had some particular insights into um, the Kubler-Ross model, which I thought were interesting. And first was that Denial is this sort of means of acclimation. So just like getting into water that's too cold or too hot and immediately pulling your foot out, that is sort of like the emotional response of denial, this sort of like um, reflexive jerking away from reality, which I think is a really good way of thinking of it because you don't want to slight anyone for experiencing denial because it's an incredibly normal and human thing that we are acclimated to doing just from, I mean, arguably multiple different reasons, but I would say just from generations and generations of conditioning and surviving in like a harsh and brutal world and us developing these different sort of like primal psychological defense mechanisms that it's very natural to want to not believe something. And um, denial kind of just serves as that like cushion. Um of course, then once you accept the reality, then comes the anger. Now, this is something that I think is interesting about um, particularly the response to the COVID pandemic because you see this anger leaking out, um, especially amongst people who are upset about the um, quarantine or, you know, kind of like stay-at-home orders and things like that, people who want to go on with regular business, even though, of course, like, how are you going to have businesses open when people aren't comfortable shopping and things like that? There's obviously all these logistical problems as to why you can't simply open back up. But you see, and this this will this is a key part of the Kubler-Ross, is that it's non-cyclical. And its completion is also not guaranteed. So I think that's an important thing to remember here because seeing this anger come out from people who are still ultimately in denial is not incongruent with the model someone can still be in denial and because of their denial they are angered by the addition or the the addition of information that further contrasts with their denial you know that's sort of that classic like experience of cognitive dissonance where their perception is coming into direct contact with someone else and there's like this moment of epistemological conflict where wait you know my reality can't be wrong because that's, you know, my perception. But here is someone coming in saying, I can't go into this 
uh, Dickie's Barbecue without wearing a face mask. <laughs> and suddenly um, you're spitting on someone and going viral on uh, Twitter. But um, that's really not um, too uncommon. I say denial and anger kind of go hand in hand because usually the process of getting out of denial is incredibly painful. And, you know, anger is kind of what I refer to as like a secondary or even sometimes tertiary emotion where it's like, you know, behind anger is always sadness or fear. And, you know, in the case of COVID, of course it's fear. It's just if you can't accept the weight of the situation and really allow yourself to be afraid, well, the next best thing you can do is be annoyed and upset with people who are reminding you of reality, you know. So from that perspective, it makes sense. Um, then uh, the next up is bargaining. And I thought this was interesting. I don't remember where I read this. I'm the worst at citing sources, but this is I read this somewhere. <laughs> but the idea was that bargaining is actually the first sign of sublimation. And I thought this was very interesting because, you know, sublimation is usually thought of as like the healthiest defense mechanism. It's the idea of like protecting yourself while, you know, building into this sort of like synthesis between the side of you that wants to preserve its like um, uh, unharmed, ignorant self, the, the part of, that wants to be fully repressed, and then the, the you that needs to exist, that needs to acknowledge the pain or whatever you're dealing with. And sublimation is sort of this way of taking that and turning it into something new. So you're, you know, actively engaging yourself in the process of uh, acceptance and um, processing the information. So yeah, like I said, like writing or um, creating art or um, I don't know. Is You know, any example like that I think is good. Um, as an artist, I always think of it in terms of creating, but I think people can find sublimation just through action or um, conflict resolution. But bargaining is interesting because it's an attempt at that. But it's almost a sort of false sublimation. We will say, well, I'll do anything as long as things can go back to the way they were. And it's, that's sort of like the aha, but you can't. You know, the cat's out of the bag. You know, the pandemic has started. So I was trying to think of examples with bargaining um, with COVID. And I think the best example are the people who, you know, you don't see it as much anymore. But towards the beginning of the pandemic, there were people who really thought like, okay, well, if we shut down for six weeks, um, everything's going to be fine. And that to me is prime bargaining. People really thought, well, you know, if we just follow the rules for a little bit, everything will, you know, be normal. And it's like, well, you know, I was reading literature in like February that was saying, well, shit is going to be fucked up until like this time next year. And lo and behold, it's, you know, now December 1st at time of recording. And that is true. <laughs> you know, things have not gotten better. But I, I think people have kind of universally gotten past the bargaining stage. There's sort of been this like, um, people have either gone past that or they haven't reached it yet. <laughs> you know, people are either still stuck in denial and anger or they've moved on to uh, depression uh, or acceptance. But I just think that's an interesting way of thinking of bargaining as this sort of like first sign of sublimation, that, that kernel of wanting to resolve the conflict is there, but you know, you're wanting to do it in this sort of like, not childish, but yeah, this sort of like naive way where you're like, well, yeah, we can do it, but as long as things can be the same. And it's like, well, no, of course, you know, life is ever changing. Um, then of course you've got depression, which bingo, that's where your boy is right now. And probably most people, I would assume, um, if you're in denial or anger, you probably are not enjoying this podcast very much and probably are in the process of writing me a strongly worded DM. 
but I digress. <laughs> um, I think most of us are probably in this stage and it's very understandable. Um, you know, we're, um, it's, it's hard to accept, um, the reality of the situation. And, uh, I think part of, um, part of why depression is so potent in the grief cycle is because, you know, saying acceptance is the fifth step is, is, uh, sort of cheating because all of the work happens between the fourth and fifth step. How do you go from depressed to accepting? You know, that's, that's where all of the work is truly done. And I think it's because I've, I've seen proposed models, um, that differ where it has the, there's a proposed six step by someone who did some co-authoring uh, with Kubler-Ross uh, after she died and released some of her works uh, posthumously. And they proposed that the sixth step is meaning, which I think makes acceptance feel less of like this difficult uh, milestone to reach. So like I would say, um, transitioning from depression to acceptance seems sort of baffling, but transitioning from depression to meaning, you know, makes me feel like I'm encroaching more on acceptance than maybe I thought. So I think that's actually a better way to think of it because, you know, you can have accepted something and still view it as meaningless or aimless. You know, usually that feeling is what causes us to feel depressed. Like, you know, this is happening for no reason. My, my suffering is meaningless. I'm powerless. You know, any, any feeling like that, of course, is going to make us depressed. But I think that um, trying to put it in some sort of context of meaning is truly when you've incorporated experience. And I don't know how long it's going to take for me to feel that way about COVID. I'm not going to lie, guys. Like, you know, I've got a, a niece who's 18 months old and I haven't been able to like touch her <laughs> in like eight or nine months. And it's like, it's really hard for me to understand, um, you know, a, a positive impactful meaning of that other than just like, you know, I'll, I'll cherish it more when I, when I can. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think that's, um, that, that's a pretty good over, overview of the Kubler-Ross, but yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to go over that stuff just kind of as a primer. Um, I just think it's important information to people, for people to know, especially like right now, because yeah, I've seen uh, like psychological literature framing COVID in this context of like constant incessant grief, you know, like every day you or I are, are griefing the loss of what that day would have been. And I think that's a kind of like hauntingly beautiful way to think of it. Cause I was just today reminiscing on like, Oh, you know, I was supposed to go to Tennessee to go to Bonnaroo and I was supposed to see um, my chemical romance perform live and a whole bunch of different things that I planned this year. And they were like the highlights of my year on my calendar. Like, oh, I don't know what my year is going to be like, but I know that on this day, I'm going to have a good day. And then, you know, all of those things are canceled. And it's so hard to even begin to process that. And then you realize, you know, there are things, there are good days that I didn't even realize I was going to have that now I, I you know, I'm not having. And having to process that every day is this sort of like endless cycle of grief. So in some ways I would say, you know, we're kind of contained in our own Kubler-Ross on a day-to-day -day basis as well. Like you kind of have to get to the point through each day where you're accepting that day as well as going through this larger super cycle 
um, on the scale of the pandemic itself. So that's where I have, I have empathy for the people who really are not handling or processing it well, you know, and I think that like as someone that can see that it's important to practice patience, but at the same time, it's, uh, really fucking disheartening to, uh, see my, my fellow countrymen, uh, not feel the same way. But okay, uh, I'm going to get on to the kind of like more fun or I guess kind of like goofy side of this episode. But uh, lately I've been playing hella video games like a lot during the pandemic. I won't lie, guys. It's I've been like hanging out with Chris and Alex and uh, working on school and making art and playing video games. That's pretty much it. I don't know. That was like four things, I think. But that really it's mostly been playing video games, sometimes like without like Chris and Alex. But, you know. Recently, I got into kind of like retro gaming, and I went to Odessa, and I picked up a CRT TV for free off of this guy on Facebook Marketplace, and uh, I instantly hooked up my N64, and I started playing um, Majora's Mask, which is like a Legend of Zelda game, and uh, instantly, I was like, damn, you know, even when I am trying to escape the pandemic, even when I'm trying to kind of like dive into this world of fantasy... I'm instantly just, like, right back in there. Uh, you know, I, for people who don't know, um, the plot of Majora's Mask is, like, simply put, like, um, you arrive in this town and the moon is dangerously close to the surface of the Earth. And there is, uh, long story short, you have three days to prevent the moon from crashing into the Earth. And... The game is set on this timer, so if you can't get it done in three days, you rewind time and go back to three days in the past and kind of make like incremental progress and slowly but surely get further and further each time until you can finally accomplish it in three days by like, you know, you know, there are tasks you do that you can completely circumvent when it repeats. But I was shocked by how much it felt like every fucking day I've been living <laughs> during the quarantine where it's sort of this like groundhog's day effect where I wake up and I'm like, Oh man, the pandemic's still going on. I, you know, I have like an online school assignment and I'm supposed, you know, I've got my short list of obligations, but at the end of the day, it's like, I'm just kind of trying to get through the day. I'm just kind of trying to like survive this thing. So in a weird way, you know, there was that aspect of like, power fantasy in the video game where I got to be the person who, you know, solved the problem. It's like if I actually got to be, you know, the person to synthesize a cure for the pandemic or something <laughs> instead of just being a guy who just has to kind of like make do and, and get through it. But, um, you know, what, one of the, um, most famous moments of the game is towards the very beginning. And at link, who's the main character gets cursed at the beginning of the game. And the first encounter first uh, person he encounters after that says, you've met with a terrible fate, haven't you? And it's like one of the first lines of dialogue, a character speaks to you in the game. And man, as soon as I read that, I was just like, it just hit me in a different way that, I think I will always associate this game with the pandemic from now on because um, just the way that that character could have said that to anyone in the town and it would have resonated with them in their own unique way. 
um, it just made me think about how everyone's really going through the shit right now. And, you know, I understand that, you know, everyone always is, you know, it's the human condition thing, but like things are particularly kind of shit right now. So you could walk up to any stranger anywhere and, and, and say that to them. And they would be like, yeah, I have met with a terrible fate, you know? And it, uh, it just really struck a chord with me. But, um, the main reason why I wrote the game down is because, well, there's a, uh, you know, real heads will know that there's a YouTube video somewhere on the internet and it's it, it's like an analysis of Majora's Mask and it compares it to the Kubler-Ross grief cycle. So I was like, oh, you know, that's perfect. Um, but I didn't want to get into that too much because someone else has already done that. So um, if you're interested, DM me and I'll try to dig up a YouTube link, but I'm too boring to cite it right now. Again, I'm awful with citations. But I, I did think it was interesting how in the game you you can interact with all these different characters in the city and they all have their own different attitudes towards the fact that, you know, the moon is very evidently falling from the sky, sort of in this like chicken little sort of way. And the first thing that stuck out to me was when you go into the mayor's office to talk to him, there are two groups of people arguing in the mayor's office and there is supposed to be festival on the third day and it coincides perfectly with the night that the moon falls from the sky and there's one group of people saying we have to evacuate town we have to cancel the event we've got to clear it out and there's another group of people saying we've never canceled the festival we have to do it these people are being ridiculous the moon isn't going to fall from the sky and it just instantly reminded me of the like all of these people who are refusing to postpone events or saying like, oh, you know, yeah, we we can have this crowded event. It'll be totally fine. You know, we'll we'll have the hand sanitizer at the door and check people's temperatures or something. And it's like, you know, all of that is sanitation theater. There are studies saying that there is no correlation between checking body temperature uh, prevents the spread of coronavirus at events. I, I hate to be the person to tell you that, <laughs> but you know, like it's you know, really the only good literature out there is like if you're at an event and every single person is wearing a mask and you're like not on top of each other, it's you know kind of okay. Definitely always fucking wear a mask. That is pretty much the lesson here. But uh, um, but no, it just really reminded me of how people are just so transfixed on maintaining their schedule in, in how that sort those norms are this exercise of control for people and how if that gets disrupted that's it you know they they that their whole control over their life starts to fall apart as soon as their their plans come undone and their expectations are challenged um but those are super memorable characters and um another memorable character if you walk around the town on the third day when the moon is like falling, people have unique dialogue, which is, you know, the game is amazing if you've never played it. I mean, you know, this is not like a gaming podcast, but it's, it's fucking amazing if you've never played it. Um, but there's a banker and, you know, the, you can store money at the banker. And then when you go back in time, the money is still in the bank, you know, through video game logic. But if you talk to the banker on the third day, Instead of like saying like, oh, you know, I'm glad you're here. You know, like how much money do you want to deposit? They say like, why are you still here? And they, they specifically address you as kid. They're like, 
kid, why are you still here? Like, don't you know what's going on? And then they kind of cut themselves off and then are like, oh, yeah, well, anyway, you know, how much money do you want to deposit? And again, that instantly reminded me of similar, this continuation of commerce, this sort of like insatiable drive of capitalist gain that can't go away, and which has been a, a colossal problem for the United States and their reaction to the pandemic. Instead of paying people to stay at home and exercising some sort of like social safety net, nope, people still have to go to work, you know, because since the government's not going to give anybody money, then people have to go and make money, which means businesses have to stay open because, you know, heaven forbid that the line would go down during a fucking pandemic. And of course, you know, the economy's in shambles anyway, because it's just a natural, um, it's a natural reaction to what's going on. People are not going to go out when they know it's dangerous. Um, but that, yeah, that instantly reminded me of, I'm sure how most people feel working during the pandemic. That's sort of like, why are you even here? But then knowing, you know, they can't question it too much because they rely on you for their business. And, um, you know, I've talked to some of my friends who, um, are currently working, like as wait staff at restaurants and things like that. And that's sort of been their general impression is like, Hey, you know, I'm here to make money. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck you're doing here. <laughs> like you can get drunk at home or, you know, you can get a pizza to go. You don't need to eat in the restaurant, which again, you know, to me, that's just sort of like people really wanting to feel, um, normal like their lives aren't that different and it's like well i've got bad news for you they are and it, it's gonna get way weirder if you don't accept that um but some of the other you know i'll i'll, I'll move on to the next game in a second but some of the other stuff that kind of reminded me of covid that is is kind of like sad or or sweet depending on your perspective well i guess the first one's not like super sweet but um, super notably, if you go to this ranch, um, there, they give alcohol to the kids and I just always, that moment has always stuck out to me in the game. And, you know, man, I, I feel, I feel super bad for the kids that are going through this and the kids that I feel the worst for are honestly the kids who, are the children of people who are not processing it this well themselves. Because, like, you know, their inability to mentally process the grief of this situation, it it's just going to get displaced onto their children because their children are going to be even infinitely more confused than they are. Because, you know, just from, like, a, I guess, you know, the word would be, like, chronoception or something, from, like, a time perception perspective – this is such a large portion of a child's life. Like if someone is, is 10 and this pandemic lasts for a year, that's like a 10th of their life. Right. Don't question my math. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, you know, me, I'm 26. So, you know, a year of this is like, you know, it's like a 26 of my life or whatever. Perspectively that, you know, this feels like, significantly shorter to me than it does a, a younger kid. So I think that like, you know, as is usually the case when adults fuck up, I, the younger generation are the ones that I feel like are uh, particularly um, 
being let down in this situation and the older generation as well. I feel like, you know, in the United States, we've really let down the older people, but, um, on a more positive note, probably my favorite moment of Majora's Mask is there is a couple whose wedding is supposed to take place the next day after the moon falls from the sky. And you can complete an optional quest line where you reunite this separated couple and they are finally together for the last moments before the moon comes crashing into the earth and kills them. And it's like, you know, there's sort of split implications of this because if you go on to then beat the game, the next, the fourth day comes and they have their wedding. And if, and if you don't, then the moon crashes into the earth and they die. And, uh, you know, there's like sort of the like morbid romantic in me that, oh, that has always stood out to me because it's like, I think that negative, like painful grief, like grief ridden moments, like the ones we're in right now really are an opportunity to express your love to someone in a unique way in saying, um, things are shit right now but you make this feel okay or things are shit right now and I'm, but I, you know, but you make them less shitty. <laughs> I don't know. This is sort of like cynic yet romantic, uh, combination of my personality has always found that sort of thing. Um, relatable and hey you know there's a scenario where everything works out and the fourth day does come and that's a huge part of the ending of that game and the end credit sequence is the the wedding and i think of nothing better to end a kind of sad game with than a note of hope that you know the fourth day is going to come and the cycle is going to break and we are all going to find acceptance and meaning in this um eventually and there are good days to come. You will attend weddings and you will attend um, parties and good things. So I don't know. That's just some some COVID rants about Majora's Mask. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna cover one more game and then kind of wrap it up. But another game I played um, after getting my CRT TV is I played Resident Evil Two on my Dreamcast, which. Um, Resident Evil 2, if you're not familiar with Resident Evil, is, you know, it's like a, it's like a zombie game, um, which instantly was hilarious, because I was like, god damn it, you know, I sat down to play another game after beating Majora's Mask, and I was like, and this one has a pandemic going on in it, although I, I made a joke to someone, and I said, like, it's the opposite of 2020, because the cops are the good guys, the pandemic is taken seriously, and it really is a conspiracy caused by a pharmaceutical company, so it's sort of the inversion of reality, the much... <laughs> the much cooler <laughs> version of reality than the uh, boring yet depressing one that we live in. Although, you know, I'm kind of glad that not nearly as many people are dead as in Resident Evil. <laughs> so we do get the dub on that one in our universe. Um, but no, as I was playing it, um, well, yeah, I guess, you know, I feel like more people are familiar with Resident Evil because there's also been some like Resident Evil movies, but pretty much plot is, um, well, if you play as Leon, uh, there's two playable characters, but if you play as Leon, you know, you're, 
You're showing up to be to, for your first day at work as a cop. So again, you know, Leon, a cab, but he technically never worked a shift as a cop. So I don't know if that counts as um, him qualifying for all cops or bastards. I'm not sure. The jury is out. But um, he shows up to Raccoon City for his first day on the job, and the city has been overrun by zombies, and he tries to help people in the police precinct and ends up kind of under, uncovering this conspiracy that this pharmaceutical company inside the town um, was working on some experimental bioweapon and accidentally unleashed it and um, caused the zombie outbreak. So I... Of course, there there's a lot going on here. You know, you can't be talking about like a virus and pharmaceutical companies and the police for it to not instantly feel like 2020, which stuck out to me instantly. Um, but I think what was most interesting to me is as I was playing it, there was sort of this like weird satisfaction in being in this game world that kind of fit more like my expectations for what I would assume like living during a plague would be like there's sort of this like really jarring like hyper real um uh, sense to everything right now for me where like you know I was just at Walmart today and I bought a new fan but it's like you know, every single person is wearing a medical mask and there's a guy at the door <laughs> with a hand sanitizer and it's so normal but I haven't acclimated to it at all. But then at the same time, if you would have told me that there was, you know, a plague, my mind obviously goes to like far more grotesque things and, you know, obviously imagining the world seeming more different, whereas it's just sort of kind of in this like bizarre combination of um, a synthesis of how things used to be and then the, the bare minimum of adjustments to kind of like acclimate to the pandemic. Um, so I felt like the game kind of was more of like this externalization of how I feel about how things are going on. You know, it's like there aren't abandoned cars littering the streets, but it sort of feels like there should be, you know, it's, it's hard to explain, but, um, there was something kind of satisfying about it, but I don't know. Uh, ultimately the big thing that stood out to me with the game is, uh, like, when it is set, it's in it. It's set in the late '90s, and I think there's kind of something to be said about like all of these different pieces of pop culture that came out in the late '90s, before 9/11, and after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's sort of in that weird like end of history era where there was this feeling that um, you know capitalism has won out over uh, a global communist hegemony with the fall of the USSR and you know, there's no more discussion of ideology and we, we all know how the world is going to be run from now on, but that didn't quite feel right. <laughs> and people were sort of waiting for something to happen. And to me, Resident Evil is sort of like a perfect cultural artifact that reflects that like, oh, you know, is the problem going to be that we just end up, you know, like destroying ourselves through our own um, industry and, incessant production and things like that. Cause like, um, to me, the sort of like popularization of zombies in general in our pop culture really is like a, 
late 90s through the 2000s phenomenon. It does kind of go through like the post 9-11 period. But to me, it's like, you know, obviously the zombie representing the like mindless consumption of like a like a liberal subject, like an individual, like fully individualized and atomized uh, subject that's devoid from like a social context. So, yeah, like that kind of fits in that like prevailing end of history ideology where like you view each individual as someone who's just there to like consume, um, which is ultimately like what a zombie is. So (laughs) I don't know. Uh, that's sort of just like a weird rant, but I think that that has come head to head with our reality in the pandemic when, we now suddenly realize, oh, we do exist in a social context and how our social context reacts to an event impacts us on an individual basis significantly. There are places in the world where they said, hey, this is how we're going to react to the pandemic. And it worked. And in the United States, we said, this is going to come down to the responsibility of each individual. And it has been a shit show. And to me, it is about that black and white. Um, so I feel like, you know, if you're the kind of person who tends to think that, um, kind of prescribe to that, like, um, liberal with, like, a capital L ideology of, like, every person exists as this atomized individual. There's no such thing as society. You know, there's just people, that awful Ma- uh, Margaret Thatcher quote. I would ask you to reevaluate that claim in the face of the pandemic, looking at um, how different societies have responded to it, because the United States strategy of giving everyone 1200 bucks one time <laughs> and telling them to go back to work has not exactly panned out, given how many fucking people have died. Um, but that's my soapbox moment. Um, on a more positive note, I would say, um, you know, my ending interpretation of uh, Resident Evil 2, and, you know, I will not be slandered for this. Um, this is not a pro-cop message. But, but I would say that this vision of Leon kind of serving as this avatar of justice, exposing this corrupt pharmaceutical industry and ending the reign of, like, the zombie populace is pretty satisfying. And I'm going to go ahead and interpret as a pro-Medicare for all message, whether uh, that was intended or not during the creation of the game. That's at least how I interpreted it on sort of like a subtext level. But, um, you know, I would say, again, if you're not the type of person that uh, thinks socialized medicine is a good idea, I would ask you to use this moment during a pandemic to really ask yourself if you think it's a good idea for people to have their health insurance tied to their employment status when a pandemic can end their employment and therefore leave them uninsured during a pandemic. (laughs) Okay, yeah, that's enough preaching. Okay, I kind of just want to wrap it up really quick. But I just want to say, like, in closing... People are all going to deal with this differently, but I think it's um, really important to remember that we are all in denial on some level still, like still not coming to full grips like with reality um, in a way that I think five years from now, even we will look back on this and say like, wow, that really happened. Or at least, man, I hope 
you know, I hope there can be that sort of reckoning. But, you know, this sort of thing doesn't just happen on an individual level, at least not in my opinion, but also sort of on this like larger super structural level. And a lot of the aspects of the pandemic are being normalized in a bad way. You know, people, you know, on Twitter will always say like, you know, normalize blank or something, but don't normalize dying from COVID because you went to work at um, Burger King, you know, don't normalize that, please, please do not normalize that at all. Um, but unfortunately it has been, um, pretty widely. And I think that that just kind of shows the sort of like large widespread societal denial that we're still in. Um, but I think that, and this, you know, this is, this is for the millennials listening and the zoomers, but I will say that this is, in my opinion, this is kind of like our moment. And, the, I, you know, I, okay, this will be my last soapbox moment. But this is our moment to really show that we cared about other people when it really mattered. And I understand that this fucking sucks. But I think it is so important to bear in mind that there are people who um, are at high risk and people who can't be as safe for a myriad of um, financial and material reasons. And if you are in a position where you can be safe, please do it. Because I want history to shine kindly on us. And I think that uh, the millennials I know are beautiful, intelligent, and capable people that deserve to have uh, history shine on them positively. So I would say that, um, you know, take a moment to think about how you have processed this and be honest with yourself and ask yourself if there's an aspect of you that is repressing the reality of the situation because of how normalized it has been. Um, on the topic of normalization, in closing, I would like to plug a documentary. It is called Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis. It's on YouTube. It's pretty chunky. I think it's like three hours long. But it's broken into chapters that are not super interconnected, so you can watch it in, like, sessions. But, hey... While you're staying home and socially distancing and being responsible, you can watch this fabulous documentary that I think some of my, like, talk about um, normalization and, like, societal denial and things like that will kind of make more sense. Um, but all in all, hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Um, it's a little rambly. I kind of just had, like, a rough outline and just went with it. Um the next episode, the crew's going to be back together. I think we're doing another movie episode. It'll probably be the last Lord of the Rings one. But I just kind of wanted to make sure we had an episode out this week, um, even though we took the week off for Thanksgiving. And thought it would be, you know, a good time to kind of talk about some stuff I've been going through and thinking about. Um, so I guess in closing, I just want to say, like, hey, you know, we are all on the same journey here. But some people are still at the beginning. So if you know somebody who is uh, kind of struggling with 
processing what's going on is how I would put it. Um, you know, be there for them and tr- try to be as kind to them as possible. I, you know, as spicy as I got in this recording, like, I don't think it's helpful to, you know, call someone like a fucking idiot for, um, not taking the pandemic seriously because at the end of the day, they are terrified of it. And that is why they are, that is why their outward behavior (laughs) indicates that they are not because they have to, you know, outwardly project the opposite of how they feel. Um, which I wish they understood, but that's, that's, that's life, I guess. But yeah, uh, thanks for listening to this episode of community garden. We've got an Instagram, which is at community G R D N K C. Um, we post stuff on there like once a week. Um, we've got some cool stuff in the pipeline. I think we're going to be dropping some clothes soon. Uh, we're kind of finalizing the design. So follow the Instagram if you want updates on that. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram at Nathaniel Went, N-A-T-H-A-N-I-E-L-W-E-N-D-T. And, um, on that note, I'd say stay safe, wear a mask and, uh, complete that grief cycle, baby. (laughs) All right. Have a good one.